from Bayside Church International, Victor Harbour. This is Chad Mansbridge. Just real quick, I don't want to take up Chad's time, but man, Ellie, I had a prophetic word for you and I wanted to give it in front of the church because I feel like it's, it's going to affect the church because God's going to take you to new levels and uh, Mylene was preaching about the new levels and I feel like you're at the end of this one, but to get higher, it's going to be the harder, you know, but it's going to be easy. It's not going to be hard. And the church, get ready because worship's about to be taken to a new level because God's going to use Matt and Ellie in mighty ways. Yes. Good eye. Am I on? I was meant to do that. And stand up and welcome Oh, Chad. no, don't stand up. <laughs> Rachel. All right, Mexican wave then. Good morning. A big welcome again uh, to y'all. It's nice to see you. I'm begging for it. I'm begging for it. Well, look, uh, last Sunday in September, it's been a big month for us. We kicked off with Father's Day, of course, at the start of the year. Baby dedications, baptisms, our 15th birthday. It seems like so long ago, doesn't it? And to Wild and Free Conference next weekend, starting Saturday, the last Saturday of the month, we have uh, the Super Kids Sleepover. But today marks the beginning of an end of a number of things. It's the final week of our offering quarter for our stage. Remember, this is just a prop. This is just a demo. The guy lent it to us for one week and got busy, okay? So that's what happened there. It's the final week of AFL season. Can't you, Crows? Uh, oh, thank goodness. Because Tiffany's a cricket fan and so we all know what happens after football. It's the final week of school term. Come on, parents. There's only one parent. Oh, fair enough. It's the final week before daylight savings. And... There you go. And it's the final week of our winter preaching and teaching series on, called This Is Us on our identity pillars. Our whole purpose of this series fundamentally is help you to know Christ. First and foremost, to know who he is, through understanding who he is, to know who we are, not just you as an individual, but us as a community. And we've done this by looking at seven pictures of Christ and the church. We haven't chosen them randomly. They've specifically been the seven that we have up on our wall here, seven pictures of the church that we feel have particular prophetic pertinence to us that help to explain what we are on about as a local church. And so our goal over this series is help is to, was to get you to know him more, to get you to understand more of who we are or the church is, and thirdly, get us to understand some of the I guess, core and distinct values of we as a local church. And this morning, I am not going to summarise the last six weeks. And everybody said, I do listen to my wife occasionally, so don't summarise the last few weeks. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to launch straight into our subject today. We're going to look at the church as God's beloved bride. The church as the wife of Christ. And it's important for us, as we said right at the start, not only to embrace every aspect of identity and metaphor and picture that God paints of himself, but also to embrace every aspect and identity and metaphor that God paints of us. 
We have multiple, not multiple personality problems. We have a multiple identity. And those identities work wonderfully well together. We need to embrace all of them. And here at this church, this is part of our operandi. We believe, our modus operandi. We believe that our attitudes, beliefs, and core values. See how we got ABC in there? Yeah. Our attitudes, beliefs, and core, or behavior, sorry, attitudes, behavior, and core values should not be things that are imposed from the outside upon us, but come from within us as we are established in our identity. They come not from a place of imposition, but from a place of identity. So that's why you don't hear from this pulpit many sermons. I'd like to say any, but I'm not here every week. Um, many sermons that are focused on you should do this, you should do this, you shouldn't do that. Imposing things from without. No, our modus operandi is to say this is who you are. And once you understand identity... Attitudes, behaviour and embracing core values is a very natural and normal thing once you know who you are. Okay, That's what we believe is a New Testament modus operandi and we like to embrace that here. So understanding identity is all important for us. We're going to look at Christ and his church. We're going to look at the picture of the church as being a beloved bride today and I'm going to undertake this message in three parts. First thing I'm going to do is to look at some core New Testament scriptures or some key scriptures just to set the, con- the concept. All right, you can turn to Ephesians 5 now if you brought your Bible today. I'll look at some other verses on the screen. The next thing we're going to do is we're going to have a look at some Old Testament history. You're going to leave with some Bible information today. Who likes Old Testament history? Okay, great, thanks. I'm going to give you a big picture of over, overview of Old Testament history because the picture of God's people being his bride does not begin in the New Testament. It comes from the Old. And so we're going to see the history, some of the history of that with the time that I have. It's important for us to understand the Bible well. It's important for us to walk away with good Bible information. Otherwise, like Ephesians 4 says, we will be tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine that, that blows around on YouTube and Facebook. Okay, we're going to be running around thinking the world's going to end on Saturday the 23rd of September 2017, which was yesterday, um, <laughs> rather than staying the course because we're grounded in biblical truth. So we're going to have a look at New Testament verses to set a content or the concept. We're going to have a look at some Old Testament history and then we're going to come back to the New Testament and draw out some applications and the implications for us today. All right, so that's what I'm doing in very Chad style. That's where we are going today. I do also want to make it clear today I'm not preaching on human marriage. Not because I'm afraid of being sued. (laughs) Thanks, Parliament. But um, I'm not talking about human marriage. I will be talking only specifically today about God's marriage to his people. Amen. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you are our great leader and guide and teacher, and it's our great privilege and pleasure to sit at your feet, to open our hearts to you, to open our minds to you, and to submit our bodies to you as instruments of righteousness, to offer ourselves as living sacrifices wholly to you, that you would use us for your glory. And so that this morning, Lord, we sit, we hear, and we trust that we will listen to everything it is you are wanting to say to us. As for me personally, I say, speak, Lord, 
this servant is listening. And if you can say yes to that, say amen. Alright, did you find Ephesians 5? Before we go there, we're going to read some other verses on the screen. Matthew 22 verse 2, Jesus speaking says, The kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a king who prepared a great wedding feast for his son. Everybody say, wedding for his son. Jesus paints the picture. If you want to understand the kingdom, you've got to understand there is a wedding Involved. That's the first book in the New Testament. The last book of the New Testament, written by John, Revelation 19, says, I heard again what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd, or the roar of a mighty ocean waters, or the crash of loud thunder. Not quite sure. Praise the Lord, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb, and his bride has prepared herself she's been given the finest of pure white linen to wear for the linen represents the good deeds of god's holy people and the angel said to me write this blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the lamb and he said these are true words that come from god chapter 21 verse 2 and i saw the holy city the new jerusalem coming down out of heaven from god as a bride beautifully dressed for a husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now with his people. He'll live with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them. That's Peter, John, now Paul. He writes to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, and says, I am jealous for you with a jealousy of God himself. I promised you as a pure bride to one husband who is Christ. So Paul's writing to a local church. Not the church universal, but the local church and saying, I look at you and see you as a bride that I pre- pledged and promised to one husband whose name is Christ. And then we come to Ephesians 5 and I'll read from verse 25 today. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed her by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she is holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. After all, no one hates his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church. We are members of his body. For as the scripture says, Genesis 2, a man will leave his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. And this, he says, is a great mystery. This this word mystery, we'll come back to this later, Um, Paul uses about six times in Ephesians. Okay, mysterion or something. It's pretty easy to translate. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. Again, I say I'm not talking about human marriage today, but suffice to say, husbands, to lift the impossible burden of that expectation off you, it does not say love your wife as much as Christ loved the church. As Christ loved the church. It's not to the same extent of an infinite, perfect, never-ending, eternal God can love, but it's in the same manner and the same ways that he loved us. 
not talking about human marriage. Let's get back to the point. As with almost all of the pictures of the church in the New Testament, nothing is original. The picture of the bride is borrowed from the Old Testament literature and from the Old Testament, particularly the Old Testament prophets. When Jesus, Paul and John, as we just read, refer to God's relationship with his covenant people as a marriage relationship, they are using well-known imagery and metaphor that come from the Hebrew Bible, or what you and I would call the Old Testament nowadays. And you remember in the first week of this series, we looked at the picture of the church as being God's garden. And I spoke about Jesus when he said, I am the true vine, about the church being a vineyard. Yes, that was not a new term, that was a borrowed term, because in the Old Testament, God referred to Israel as a vineyard. And now he was saying, well, that picture now applies to my church. So in the same way, the picture of a bride is not a new idea in the New Testament. It is borrowed, it has a legacy, it has a history, it is a motif, to use a literary term. It is a motif that comes all the way through the scriptures. And so in order to have a look at that, now I'm going to step into looking at a bit of Old Testament history. Here we go. When we approach the Bible, we are reading a book of covenant history. The Bible is not a book of world history. We don't read about the dynasties of the Chinese, of the Aztecs, of those in Southern Africa, North American Indians, Aboriginal Australians, etc., etc. We're not reading a book of world history. We're reading a book of covenant history. The God's special covenant people. It is their story that later becomes our story and later becomes the story for the whole planet. But it's primarily a covenant story. The book of Genesis begins with God having a covenant family. One covenant family led by fathers. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. One family in the age of the fathers. Through Moses, that one family now becomes one nation. With one law, made up of 12 tribes from the 12 sons from the fathers, the 12 tribes, that one covenant family becomes one covenant nation. And then after Judges and Samuel and a whole bunch of strange and peculiar history, the people asked for a king. And that one family, who became one nation, now become one kingdom. Primarily, in their peak, led by David and Solomon. Solomon screws up at the end of his reign, and God says, as soon as you die, what's going to happen is that this one kingdom is going to be split into two and that becomes the story of much of the books of kings and chronicles and all of the books of the prophets relate to the two kingdoms one family becomes one nation one nation becomes one kingdom and that one kingdom is split and becomes two kingdoms One of those kingdoms is called Judah. And they stay in Jerusalem. And Judah and Benjamin's kind of involved there as well. Judah stay in the southern part of the promised land. And they become one of the kingdoms. They're known as the southern kingdom. And this is where David, Solomon and his sons continue to reign on that throne. It is Judah. The capital city is 
Jerusalem, the temples there, that's where all the worship happens. The guys who broke away once the kingdom divided became known as Israel. There's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, it's because they were the majority. These guys were only two tribes, these were ten, so they're the majority, we'll call them Israel. But as you read the prophets, they are also given a nickname. And that nickname is Ephraim. So sometimes when you read the prophets, they talk to Judah, 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 and then they talk to Israel and Ephraim. It's the same group. There's two reasons I believe that they're also called Ephraim. The first is that while these guys had the kingdom of David and all their sons became kings, that continued as normal in Judah, these guys established their own king. Remember, two kingdoms. And the guy, the first man to become king over here was from the tribe of Ephraim. Okay, so I think that's probably a reason these guys became known as Ephraim. The other reason that only occurred to me earlier this year in New Zealand during worship, where God can really speak to you if you're listening, <laughs> the other thing that occurred to me right out of the blue is that Ephraim and Judah are the two, tri are the two tribes where Joshua and Caleb were from. So it's a theory of mine that God wanted to honour the two spies by making sure their names continued in the legacy of God's people. Take it or leave it, I don't care, that's just an idea. So, you've got Israel in the south, and you've got Judah, no, other way around. Judah in the south, Israel in the north, we have here a divided kingdom. And of course it's in Israel that eventually there's a guy called King Ahaz, marries a woman called Jezebel, and it's that area that they make Samaria their capital. They have their own throne, their own government, their own worship. They worship Baals, etc., etc. Okay? And this is where we now come into the era of the prophetic books. And the first, the first man... Remember I said that this picture of the wife was spoken of through the Old Testament? It's, only, it's first overtly mentioned by a prophet called Hosea. Now, if you read the Old Testament, this picture of God's people being his bride is hinted at through Moses, and you've got Song of Solomons and Ruth and Esther and all them that sort of, oh, now they make sense. But it's not really until you get to Hosea that he comes out and says, my people Israel, because he prophesied up here in the north, my people Israel are my bride. I had to do this sermon before we went to video because I, I wouldn't want this to go viral, okay? For those listening, I've got a Barbie doll sitting on the kingdom of Israel, okay? This is, this is the bride. And this guy called Hosea comes along. He is the most major of the minor prophets. In about 190 BC, there was a guy who wrote a book called Ecclesiasticus. Not Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiasticus. It's not in our Bible, okay? it's in the intertestamental period. But he wrote a book and he referred to the 12 minor prophets at the end of our Old Testament Bibles as the 12. And so it was already established right back there, 200 years before Jesus, that there was the 12 minor prophets. Hosea was probably the biggest player. He was probably the most important guy of the 12. And he starts prophesying here in about 750 to 700 BC. All right, And he starts prophesying to this group of people, not those guys down the south. He's worried about Israel. And God tells him the most unusual thing. He says, Hosea, I want you to go and marry a woman called Gomer. 
surely just by that name you know there's going to be trouble, right? He said, I want you to marry a woman called Goma, and when you marry her, I want you to know she's going to commit adultery, heaps. She's going to cheat on you like there's no tomorrow. Okay, Lord, I'll do that. All right, good on you. So he goes and marries a woman called Goma, and he's doing this as a prophetic picture because he wants to demonstrate God's relationship with Israel, and Israel has become his adulterous wife. So there's a prophetic reason for this, obviously. Okay. So he marries Goma. They have three kids. The first one is a son, and they call him God Scatters. You can read this in chapter 1. And he said, the reason for this is because I'm going to put an end to the kingdom of Israel. So I want you to call your kid God Scatters. The next daughter, the next one is a daughter, and, they, and he says, I want you to call her, I no longer love you. <laughs> Not a good, don't do that, parents, all right? I want, want you to call her God no longer loved because while I have loved her, there's going to come a point where I'm going to say, I don't love you anymore. However, he says, if you read chapter 1, he makes it clear. He says, while I'm saying that to Israel, I'm not going to say that to Judah. I'll continue to love her. We'll get to her later. He says, that that's the set name of your second child. The name of the third child is this. You are no longer my people. That's the third, third child. You are no longer my people. How depressing with your three kids. <laughs> okay, this is all a prophetic sign. But like with a lot of the prophets, while a lot of it is doom and gloom, there's always hints of hope. All right, there's always hints of hope. So even when he says, and you, your homework is obviously to read Hosea, okay? Even when he says to her, you are no longer my people, he says to her, there will come a day where the very people I said, you are not my people, I will now say, you are my children. And he says that will be the day where I actually bring the two kingdoms together as one under one leader who is David. Okay, David. I'll bring these two leaders under one who is David. And he says, what else is he saying? Chapter 3, he says, um, uh, this will take place in the last days. Okay, so there's all these hints. So go home and read Hosea, Hosea, whatever, okay? Go read Hosea. The way it's structured is a little bit peculiar. Chapter 1 to 3 is like the overall picture. And then the rest of the chapters are like various oracles and prophecies. So it doesn't really read like a straight history book, but that's the nature of poetry. Get over it. Okay, so that's how it works. So go home and read, read, um, read Hosea. So that's the point. Hosea comes here. Then later on, this picture of God's people being his bride is borrowed by the major prophets. Okay, so over the next hundred or so years, we've got guys like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. They come along and they use this language. They borrow Hosea's principle of referring to his people as a bride. Am I jumping ahead of myself? I am. I missed a really important bit. Sorry. Why did you spend so much time doing notes, Chad? <laughs> Okay, as you read Hosea, amongst all the glimmers of hope, one of the points of Hosea's prophecy is this. It's to convince everyone, it's to make plain that Israel has been an adulteress. And therefore, God has the legal right to end the relationship. And by covenantal law, of covenant law, there are two ways that you can end this relationship. The first is by divorce. Deuteronomy 24. So God could legally divorce her 
and which he does. He says in Hosea chapter 2, verse 2, I think we've got that on the screen. Hosea 2, 2, he issues her with a statement of divorce and says, For she is no longer my wife, and I am no longer her husband. He issues her with divorce. The second way you can end a relationship with an adulterous wife is by overseeing her death. Now, remember, don't panic. I'm looking at ancient history here, okay? By overseeing her death. And so at the end of Hosea, he says this. He says, Ephraim used to be a mighty nation. Hosea 13, verse 1. Ephraim was a mighty nation, but when they worshipped the Baals, they died. Okay? Two ways this relationship ends, by divorce and by death. And Hosea is painting this picture that it is God's perfect legal right to do that to those northern tribes. And this happened in practical terms when in 722 BC, as all the prophets were saying, the Assyrian armies came from the north, they conquered Israel and the capital city of Samaria and they took her away and they were scattered among the nations. So that's the message of the story of Hosea. I mentioned Jeremiah before. If you read Jeremiah, all of chapter 2 and 3 is devoted to the husband and wife imagery. And here's one verse that you might recognize in chapter 3. Jeremiah 3 verse 6. During the reign of King Josiah, the Lord said to me, Have you seen what faithless Israel has done? She has gone up in every high hill and under every spreading tree and has committed adultery there. I thought that after she had done this, she would return to me, but she didn't. And not only that, but her unfaithful sister Judah saw it. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of her adulteries. Yet I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery. So you see how sometimes the prophets, if you don't understand the divided kingdom, the prophets can be a bit confusing. Who's he talking to? He gave these people a certificate of divorce. And then he said, but Judah, I've not done that with her. So he makes a distinction, which is what Hosea does as well. But in making this distinction, he also says that Judah is a <laughs> wife. And these two are two, what's it say? Sisters. Keep, keep the verses up, John. They are two sisters. Now don't freak out. God does not marry two women. Okay, when they came out of Egypt, he made a covenant of love to one family, one nation, one kingdom. That kingdom split, and so now they're seen to be two, but God only married one. Does that make sense? The one became two. So it's not like God intentionally married two people. They became two, and Jeremiah paints this picture of them being two sisters. Ezekiel comes along and does the same thing. If you want to read your kids a great chapter of the Bible for bedtime, I suggest you... Read Ezekiel 16. Ezekiel 16 is a graphic account of how God found this naked... I can't go into the details. Anyway, this, God found the nation of Israel and bathed her and cleansed her and wed himself to her and how she hoard herself into the nations. It's all there in Ezekiel 16. He borrows this whole, uh, this whole thing. And uh, he also talks about them being two sisters. So Ezekiel borrows this split here and says they're two sisters. Okay, And the reason, again, I need to make this very clear, the reason the prophets distinguish between them 
is because although they are acting the same, God is not going to exactly treat them the same. When he prophesied to Israel, he said, I'm going to divorce you and oversee your death, and that's going to happen when the Assyrians take you away into captivity. When he comes to Judah, he says, you should have learnt your lesson from your sister and you haven't, so the Babylonians are going to come and take you into captivity. That sounds the same. The only difference is this. He never talks about divorcing her and he never talks about her dying. Okay, There's no legal divorce here. There is no death. It is a temporary separation. How long did, Israel, did Judah go into Babylonian exile? 70 years. Okay? And so when Isaiah, the other prophet that uses this imagery, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, now Isaiah, when he's proffering to this wife down here, he says this in, in, in chapter 54. He says, For the Lord, your maker, is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He's called the God of the earth. He will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit, a wife who married young only to be rejected. Rejected but not divorced. For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I'll bring you back. In a surge of anger I hid my face from you, but only for a moment. But with everlasting kindness I'll have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. What's your point, preacher? The point is, amongst all this talk of death, divorce and separation, God's promises again and again through these prophets that there will come a day where he will reunite both kingdoms under a new government. And this will happen at the same time that he offers her a new marriage covenant. A new government under King David, and that will come with a new covenant. Jeremiah, the most, one of the most famous prophecies about the new covenant, read it carefully, Jeremiah 31 to 31, says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, where I will make a new covenant. So if we're thinking marriage, I will have a new marriage covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah, a new covenant. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant even though I was a husband to them. They came out of Egypt as one. They broke my covenant even though I was a husband. And even though over here in Israel there's been death, divorce and destruction. And here... In Judah, there's been a temporary separation. There will come a day where a new covenant will be offered and it will be with both houses. They will come together and there will be a new king. It doesn't say that there, but it's later on. There will be a new king that will rule over them. This is the consistent promises of the prophets. Am I talking to people? Do you, do you like the prophets? I mean, they're... They can be a bit hard to understand, but I hope this helps today. Now, here's the problem. Are you still with me? You, you go home and you read Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and just think of the Barbie dolls, okay? Just think of the Barbie dolls. I've got the Barbie dolls. Here's God's problem. How can he offer to marry this woman 
when he's already married to her? How can he give her a new marriage, a new covenant, when they, he's committed to not ending this one? Because of David. He keeps saying, I will not abandon you because of my covenant to David, so I'm going to be faithful to the house of Judah. How can he offer a woman two marriages? And secondly, how can he remarry this? Divorced and dead and scattered throughout the nations. How can you remarry? Because, I don't know if you know this, but in Deuteronomy 24, the law forbids a man, when, when he divorces a wife that's committed adultery and she goes out and sleeps around, the, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, the Deuteronomical law... You're glad you got a theologian for a pastor, aren't you? The Deuteronomical law forbids that man to remarry her. Deuteronomy 24, he's not allowed to. He's not allowed to remarry an adulterous, divorced wife. So God's got a problem. He keeps promising to remarry her, but she's dead, and legally he's not allowed to. And he's promising to remarry this one, but he's already married to her, and he said, I'm not going to end this one. Come back next week and we will continue part two of the series. All right. A few weeks ago, months ago, I preached out of Ezekiel 37. Remember, Ezekiel is one of the prophets who uses this analogy over and over and over and over again. And he comes to a valley of dry bones. And that valley of dry bones is the house of Israel. And they, the house of Israel, he says, are crying out, we are dead our hope is gone, we are lost. We are dead, covenantally dead. Our hope is lost. And Ezekiel says, I'm going to resurrect you by my spirit and life. And that dead nation comes to life again. Immediately, in the same chapter, after the bones come to life, Ezekiel, God says to Ezekiel, take a stick, remember this, Take a stick and write the name Israel on it and then take a stick and write the name Judah on it. Take those two sticks, join them together as one and prophesy that the two kingdoms will become one again. I will resurrect them from the dead. The two will be made one. And it also says in the same chapter, David will be there king and I will make an everlasting covenant with them so the answer to almost every difficult question Chad's going to ask when I say how's God going to do this the answer is Jesus the church is growing day Pentecost has happened the book of Acts is kicking goals. Jewish people are coming into the new covenant somehow. We'll describe that later because after all, how can they come into the new covenant when they're already married? Look at that later. But the other thing that's happening midway through Acts is that suddenly Gentiles start coming to the Lord. And this is a big problem because we don't like them. Okay? Don't like them. And they have a council in Jerusalem they say, what the heck is going on? How can we have these people who are dead to God? They've got no covenant with him. How can non-covenant people come into a covenant with God now? 
And in Acts 15, after deliberating about this, James stands up and he quotes Amos. Now, Amos quoted, Amos was the first one to predict Israel's demise, that they'll be destroyed. And Amos, later on in his prophecy, says this. He says, in the last days, I will rebuild David's fallen tent. David was the king of one kingdom. And in rebuilding David's fallen tent, all the nations will come to him under one king. Paul gets into a lot of trouble by preaching and by helping Gentiles come into the church. He gets into a lot of trouble. There's two reasons the religious people hate Paul so much and put him on trial. The first one is because he's always hanging out with Gentiles. There's always this, what are you doing with those people? You're obviously... You're obviously trying to get rid of Moses' law. Okay, there's something going on here. And the second reason he's put on trial is because he preaches Israel's hope in the resurrection of the dead. So when you get to the end of the book of Acts, he goes on trial. Chapter 23, verse 6, he's before the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. They say, we're going to arrest you. You're preaching heresy. And he says this, I stand on trial today because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. Later on, he goes to King Agrippa and he says, the only reason I'm standing before you, King Agrippa, is because of my hope in what God promised our ancestors that I'm on trial today. The hope that our 12 tribes are longing to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night, King Agrippa. It's because of this hope these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Verse 22, I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring light to his own people and then the Gentiles. Jesus was not the first human to rise from physical death. There's a guy in the Old Testament, there's Lazarus, okay? There's the, there's the widow who's lost her son, okay? Jesus boom, raises him from there. There's the little girl, okay? Many people, a certain number of people had raised from the dead. Jesus is the first to arise from the dead. What death did Jesus arise from that was unique? He rose from covenant death. From being dead to God, dead in sin, he rose out of that state of sin death and was alive to God. And Paul is saying, through Christ, the resurrection of the dead is taking place. And that is what's happening with the Gentiles. He says later, when he's on trial in Rome, he says, it's because of the hope of Israel, I'm bound with these chains. What's your point, preacher? The point is... Paul's on trial because he's preaching the hope of the Old Testament, which is that the dead will be raised. And he's saying through Christ, this is what is happening. Now, who are the dead? It is the ones that God divorced and said were dead, but one day will come back. It's the ones that Ezekiel said, I will raise you, Israel, from the dead. And so what's happening is that the promises made to dead Israel are interpreted in the New Testament as being applicable to anyone who is not in covenant with God. In other words, all the Gentiles. 
Which is why when you read Romans 9 and Paul is making the case that God's predestined Jews and Gentiles, when he says, I've predestined Gentiles, he quotes Amos's promise to this group of people. He's saying that the promises I made to scattered Israel, divorced, dead, indistinguishable, that is being fulfilled when the Gentiles are coming into covenant with God. And so Paul writes to the Gentiles in Ephesus, chapter 2, and he says, You were dead in your transgressions and sins, but God has made you alive in Christ. In order to solve the problem of death, there needs to be a resurrection. And then there's a remarriage because he promises to marry and bring a new covenant. I'll get to that in a moment. We now have a problem with Judah because she has a marriage. Are you okay? I'm sorry for those listening on the recording. It's not going to be as clear. Barbie dolls. He now comes to Judah and we've got a problem. How does God promise a new marriage to this woman when he said, I'm not going to divorce you? Because of David, I'm not going to divorce you like I did with her. Paul gives us the answer to that as well. As a Jewish man, Romans 7 and Galatians 2, both of which are in the context of a Jewish believer coming to Jesus, he says, he talks about being married and how there's no way you can get out of a marriage law unless somebody dies. No divorce, but death. And he said, as a Jewish person, I died to the law of marriage. I died to the law. I came out of this community. I was reborn a new creation that I may be married to another. And so we have... Jesus fulfills the Old Testament prophecies of this kingdom and this kingdom being united as one under King David, who is King Jesus. He solves the problem of these being covenantally dead by saying, when you identify with Jesus' death on the cross, you rise from the dead, but they do not rise as Old Covenant Israel. You are a new creation. So as a new bride, you can marry the one who previously divorced you without him breaking the law. Because it wasn't the old wife that was raised from the dead in physical form. It was a spiritual community. The Gentiles coming into new spiritual life and identifying with a brand new bride who then God can say I wed you with a covenant this new bride is how also the Jews can come into a new marriage God's not remarrying the same people these people now individually die to the law and come into the new Christian community and are offered the new covenant and in this way God is faithful to his promise to say, I've offered a new covenant 
to both this house and this house. It's not like the old covenant with the law written on stone, but it is written on hearts, for this is a spiritual community that is married to me in a whole new way. And so Jesus on the cross, as he's hanging on the cross, he breathes his last and he dives. The soldiers come to him, they take a spear, they ram it into his side, and blood and water flows. Blood and water is a sign of birth. Okay, when ladies break their waters, blood and water flow, and it's what happened to Adam when Eve came from his side. At the cross, Jesus gave birth to a new community. And so Paul can say in Ephesians, now we're coming right back to Ephesians. Are you still with me? Coming right back to Ephesians. Paul can say to Ephesians, the mystery of marriage, this mystery of how Jesus and his bride are one, that word mystery is used in the previous chapters where he says, God has entrusted me with a mystery. Ephesians 3.6 This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with God's people because they are members of a Sharers, members of one body and sharers together in the promise of Christ. God creates a new creation that he can wed and join himself to her in a covenant that he says will last forever. Holy. Thus ends the history lesson. That's a good history lesson. And so Christ has a new bride. And you are part of that body of Christ, that bride of Christ, when you die to the law, if you're a Jew, or you die to sin and are resurrected into this new identity. We're going to finish by looking at Ephesians 5, five very quick practical points. You ready? Say five. Ephesians 5, verse 25. Oh, I need my Bible. <laughs> Sorry. Most of it I can quote. Ephesians 5, 25. He says, Therefore, oh, let's just put it on the screen for me. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Let's just go with the PowerPoints. Let's just go with the PowerPoints on this one, guys. First way that Christ loves the church is that he pursued her. As Christ loved, past tense, the church. Christ pursued us. It's said that you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. You've all heard that? That's wrong. You can choose your family. And you choose your family when a husband chooses a wife to come into his family. And God did that with you. You didn't choose him. Ultimately, he chose you. He pursued you and he knew what he was getting. We love because he first loved us. He took the initiative. He chose us. Number two, verse 25 said, not only did he choose her, but he gave himself for her. He not only pursued her, he also purchased her. And rather than thinking this is some crazy patriarchal system and language, let me just say this. 
He didn't possess her as a piece of property. This point is that he paid the highest price to have her. That's how much he valued us. He valued us so much that he was willing to lay down his life to purchase us with the greatest price. So we can put our chest out, look back at what he's done for us and say, that's how much he valued me. He purchased me to be his own. We know that the Bible does not paint the picture of women being man's property right back in the very oldest Old Testament book, Job. Because in the story of Job, God, Satan says to God, or however it works, he says, you can touch his property, but you cannot touch him. And do you know the only person in that story that Satan does not hurt? His wife. So she's not property. She is one with him. The point is he valued her enough to pay the highest price, which leads, makes sense of the third point. He provides for her. He provides. It says he cares and feeds her. And while that might sound a bit strange to us, at the end of the day, Paul's writing that because according to Exodus 20, the husband's obligation was to feed and clothe his wife. It's there in the law. So God has to say Jesus is practicing what he's always preached. He's loving the, the church like Jehovah has always loved his bride. He's doing it according to the principles that he has set. And what's interesting is that why pursued and purchased a past tense provides is a present ongoing tense. Listen to me. You're part of the bride of Christ and he provides for you. Because some of you need to hear that today. Some of you need to know he pursued me. Some of you need to know he purchased me. He valued me enough to die for me. That's my takeaway today. Because I'm not going to remember the Barbie dolls, but I'll remember the purchase thing. Thank you for finally getting to some peas, Chad. Now I understand. Said no one. Thirdly, but some of you just need to know, he provides for you. It's all there in Ephesians 5. As Christ loved the church, he cares and, and uh, provides for her. The, the message says he feeds and pampers her. Provides us with helpful things and protects us from harmful things. It then goes on to say that he prepares her or he purifies her by the washing of water with his words. Remember we read that? And this is really important because in this first century in history, the Jewish weddings, apparently, research I've done, in the Jewish vows, the husband would say, according to Exodus 20, I will provide for you. And the woman would reply, I'll keep myself pure for you. Which is a good promise to make. But Paul says, in our covenant, it's not whether it's not contingent upon whether we keep ourselves pure. He says in Ephesians 5, the groom makes her holy with his word. Washing, the Jewish picture of forgiveness, constant forgiveness. It is not your job to keep yourself pure enough for the holy husband of heaven. He provides for you. 
and he purifies us by extending constant forgiveness so that this situation will never happen to us. Last point. The purpose of all this is that ultimately he may present her, says that he may present her to himself and I also add there just for another P, he will parade her before others. The word present is parahistemi, it means alongside and to stand. He does all this because he will stand alongside her. I'm not ashamed, Jesus says, to be seen with you. I'm not ashamed to be seen with you. That's a great idea. Why don't you all of you come up and then it will make me finish. <laughs> That's right. They're all sitting there waiting for the last P. <laughs> the, the slide's full now. Let's go. Okay, hang on. Don't, don't lose this moment. He pursued her, purchased her. That's how much he values us. Provides for us ongoingly. He is our source. And he's made a covenant promise to ongoingly do that for you. He purifies us, prepares us with his words, constant words of forgiveness. It is not our job to do that of our own. And ultimately, so that he may stand alongside her and may present her to himself and stand alongside. And also, I believe, so that he may parade her that others can see. Because in Ephesians 2, when, when Paul's talking about these two kingdoms coming together, okay, it says God's intent, this great mystery hidden for long ages past. Mystery. Say the word mystery again. The great mystery that was hidden was that the two would become one. This administration, chapter 3, sorry, this administration will show that through the church, God's manifold wisdom would be made known to others. Through this bride, God will reveal, he'll parade her so that people can see how awesome he is. I've said this before, Carol, but when you go home today and you buy the Sunday Mail and you look at the pictures of the people who got married this weekend, you look at the brides first. Don't you? Because the guys are all ugly. And you look at the bride and you ask yourself, who the heck deserves a woman as beautiful as that? Because one of the main purposes of the bride is to point others towards the husband. And so if I were to add another P, it would be that God has purposed us to display his goodness and his kindness and his awesomeness by being a bride that represents him well. If you are part of God's chosen bride today, why don't you stand to your feet? Because with God the great initiator, the most natural thing we can do in response is be the bride I'm not here to tell you you must worship worship is always a picture of is often a picture of sexual intimacy in the, in the scriptures you're not commanded to worship but when you know you're a beloved bride the most natural and normal thing to do is to draw near to a husband 
that said you're worth dying for. I chose you. I'll look after you. I'll constantly forgive you. Which is why, as we finish this series, our banner, our value system in this church, part of the revelation that this gives us, it says, with Christ, our husband and friend, we embrace passionate worship and cultivate a culture of honour, intimacy and authenticity. Because when you are a secure bride, the most natural and normal thing to do is to be passionate about that man, is to honour him, is to be intimate and to be real. Because you don't have to fake anything with the guy who chose you as you are. Why don't you put your hand on your heart? Let's respond, Ellie. This has been a podcast from Bayside Church International. Thanks for listening.